constant of evil is the soul of man. There is no evil, no darkness, no wickedness, no devil, no demon, no principality, no power, no force of witchcraft, of divination, no negative influence that can manifest itself upon this realm without the soul of a man without a vessel called man without a human without a man or woman given given to that evil cause it cannot birth itself in this realm without man Willingly or unwillingly, man contributes, man is the substance of evil. We are the manifestations, the expressions of evil. A broken soul, a broken soul, a defective soul. A soul that has lost connection to the divine. A soul that has lost its compass. A soul without light. A soul devoid of love. We need a renewal. We need a renewal. need a renewal. The soul has to be renewed into its wholeness. Souls that are broken, souls that have been damaged, souls that were abused, souls that have been subject, subject to the elements that break and wound and child abuse sexual molestation cruelty hunger lost all inflicted and built into souls from birth some have suffered abuse and brokenness from the foundations
All these are gateways of evil. It is time for a renewal of the soul. It's time for the renewal of souls. It's time for the renewal of souls. A renewal that will bring about regeneration, a new life. The substance of evil is the soul of man. Chapter 4 Three Generations of Helpmates Running Towards Destiny Ayeyin Ayeyin was the first-born daughter of Olisa, the High Chief of Emory Kingdom, in Ekiti State, southwest of Nigeria. Her father was the most prominent of the kingmakers of the land, and he had a great ambition to become the progenitor of a king. He had seen visions of this king that was to be his heir, and this certain future had also been prophesied to him by the gods. The Yoruba monarchy was guided strictly by heredity, and Olisa understood that the only means by which any descendant of his could be numbered among the kings of Imri kingdom was by marriage. He was determined that Ayeyin was the tool by which his ambition was to find expression. Therefore, as soon as she reached the age of puberty, Chief Olisa offered his daughter in marriage to his friend, the heir apparent to the throne of Imuri Kingdom. Ayeyin and her friend Fajembi were, however, determined on their own part to have a different destiny than that which had been fashioned for them. Ayeyin's betrothal to a man who was old enough to be her father did not impress her. She knew it was to be a powerful match. She, the daughter of the High Chief Olisa, the senior kingmaker, was to be married to Chief Prince Oshin Oluseri Okasho. But she had continued to avoid the marriage rites that would finally lead to the marriage. Before long, she was locked into a battle of wills with her father, and as each year passed, she feared that she would ultimately capitulate to his will, thus becoming sentenced to a life she did not want. Her younger sister was already married and had two children, but Ayuni did not care. As she contemplated the prospect of succumbing to her father's manipulation, a plan began to take shape in her mind. Then the day came. Reverend Father and Mrs. Rankelor came to Emory for a Christian outreach with other Christian missionaries. After the program, they left Emory to return to their base in Ibado. When morning came in Emory, Ayeyin could not be found. As community search progressed, the facts emerged. That impetuous, stubborn girl had done the unthinkable. She and her friend had run away with the missionaries. Within days, they became household names throughout Ekiti Kingdom. 
Ayeyun, omo ulisa. Oun fa jembi, omo alabo mo bo imbo salow. Meaning, Ayeyun, daughter of Olisa, and Fajembi, daughter of Alabo, have run away with the white folk. What a scandal! Years later, Ayeyun, now Christianed Miriam, mounted the pulpit as the first woman to preach in Ikiti. Miriam met and married Samuel Obawaya, a man with a background radically different from hers, but not completely unfamiliar. When Ayeyun met Samuel, he was in training as a catechist with the Anglican mission. Her story fascinated him. He had been a native healer and Ifa priest, and much like Abraham, the Lord called him out of the pagan priesthood and he left it all to become a Christian. Back in those days, an Ifa priest was a highly prestigious position, not unlike a medical doctor today as he was a healer and family counselor. Samuel's native name was Fawaya, which meant Ifa delivers from suffering. Many people came to Fawaya from far and near throughout the Kitty Kingdom. Fawaya had a weakness for women, and he became entangled in affairs with not a few of his patients, thus earning himself a reputation as a ladies' man. He made enemies of many a husband who had brought his wife to be healed of one ailment or the other, only to lose her to the tall and dashing healer. After his conversion and baptism, Fawaya changed his name to Samuel or Bawaya, his surname now given the glory of deliverance to God as king. Fawaya had heard of Ayeyu before he even met her. He looked forward to meeting the girl who ran away with the missionaries. It was not long before their paths crossed and he became convinced that their destinies were linked, so he proposed to her. Their Christian wedding was a society one as it matched, marked a fresh beginning for Samuel. Their Christian wedding was a society one as it marked a fresh beginning for Samuel. He had told his bride about the women whose children he had sired and she had graciously offered to raise them. So long before they started their own family, Miriam adopted all of Samuel's children, thus unifying and bringing together children who had previously only heard rumors about being siblings but had never met. Samuel greatly appreciated this gesture on the part of his wife, and he was determined to make his marriage work. Not everyone was happy about Miriam's open-hearted gesture to raise Samuel's children. Rather than be grateful that she had given their children the opportunity to be raised by their father, from whom they had been previously estranged, many of Samuel's former women felt scorned by his marriage to Miriam. In Yoruba land in those days, polygamy was an acceptable form of marriage, and not a few of the women who had children for Samuel had hoped that they would be married to him. Knowing they had competition, the women had been prepared at the very least for a polygamous marriage to the man who had restored their hope of ever becoming mothers. No one saw a conversion or a baptism in view, and certainly no one was willing to accept or forgive the outsider who turned up to claim their hero as a prize solely for herself. A monogamous Christian marriage certainly added salt to the injury. Happily ever after? Samuel soon discovered that in spite of a sincere, 
Happily Ever After, Samuelson discovered that in spite of its insight, Happily Ever After, Samuelson discovered that in spite of his sincere desire to be dedicated to his wife, his prior lifestyle had become more entrenched in him than he thought. As his work took him to different duty posts, sometimes without his family, he found that women remained his weakness. Soon, the stories of his infidelity began to reach his wife, and in order to delay the inevitable showdown, he kept putting off his return and stayed away from home. Mary, on her part, first disbelieved the rumors about her husband's affairs. However, as months passed, and he did not come home, while more stories circulated about his different women, she started to have her doubts. As she prayed, she remembered a dream she had on the eve of her wedding. In this dream, a woman kept pulling at her veil as she walked towards the altar. She turned around to confront the woman, but she could not make out her face, and no words came out of her mouth as she faced her attacker. Next, in the dream, she found herself at the altar, taking her vows before the priest. When she awoke from the dream, she prayed for an understanding of this bizarre dream, and then she shared it with Mrs. Rankeller, her guardian. As the elderly white woman gently arranged Ayeyo's veil, As the elderly woman tenderly helped Ayeyo with the finishing touches to her veil, she handed her a bouquet of flowers. Ayeyo turned around slowly in front of the mirror, while Frances Rankela smiled her approval and said to her, Miriam, I have been praying about an interpretation of your dream, and I believe the Lord has given it to me. The woman tugging at your veil is indicative of spiritual opposition to your marriage with Samuel. But since she did not succeed in ripping or removing the veil, I believe it means you will prevail over the opposition. I believe that means you will prevail over the opposition. The fact that you could not make out her face means that there is more than one woman. So it is more indicative of a spirit than an individual. I also believe that the fact that you took your vows on the dream before the priest means that Christ, our great high priest, has ordained your union. You must always remember that your vow this morning will not be so much to your husband as it will be to the Lord. It is to him in your husband that you will be pledging your heart and your lifelong obedience. Standing at the altar, Miriam looked up into the face of her husband while Francis's words came back to her, as they now did again nearly five years after that fateful day. She wiped tears from her eyes as Samuel admitted his infidelities to her. Her heart was broken, but she looked up to heaven and prayed, Lord, you give me this marriage. It is a precious gift from you, and I will honor it as long as I live. Miriam had already buried two sons, and she feared that she might lose the pregnancy she was carrying also. 
After Samuel left home to return to his duty post, Miriam came to an important decision. Lord, Samuel is only a man, and he has weaknesses. People are advising me to report him to the church authorities to discipline him, but I will not do that. I will not. The scriptures say that the virtuous woman brings her husband good, not evil, all the days of her life. I will not report him. Lord, I will forbear with this weakness and hold on to your promise that my marriage is blessed by you. Ah, I have already lost so much. But I know you have a wonderful plan ahead. So if this child is a male child, I will give him to you the same way that Hannah dedicated Samuel. He will serve you all the days of his life. Miriam took her mind off the rumors, studiously avoiding the gossiping ladies who tended to linger in the church after Bible study on Wednesdays and choir practice on Friday evenings. Resting as best as she could, Miriam decided to remain strong and healthy for her baby while she attended to her duties as a leader in her church and to running her modest finishing school for young women. She knew that many of the young Christian women who came to her home for lessons in crochet, how to set a dining table, table manners, baking, and other lessons in Western culture considered her a role model. She also knew that the mothers of her husband's children were watching and waiting for a sign, any sign, of weakness, so that they would swoop in to make mince meat of her. Sighing, she turned her attention back to the eager faces of her young protégés to answer a question posed by one of them. You're right, Alice. Dressing modestly and beautifully is an important part of our duties as a, Christi as a Christian. You are right, Alice. Dressing modestly and beautifully is an important part of your duties in a Christian marriage. But the scriptures tell us that your beauty and our adornment should be more about what is inside than on the outside. Always remember that. Fulfilling Destiny, Rhoda. Many years later, Rhoda, the youngest daughter of Marian and Samuel, went off to teacher training school. Being a teacher was considered a choice profession for middle-class women, and Rhoda was smart. Her mother, Marian, had given birth to 12 children, but only five survived. And after the death of her older sister, Mujisola, Rhoda became the only female among three older brothers. Her mother ran a finishing school for young women who lived with her in a boarding arrangement, going to school during the day and learning sewing, embroidery, cooking and table manners, among other skills at weekends. Miriam soon realized that having a household chock full of eager ladies-in-waiting meant that her daughter was not being properly trained. Hence, Rhoda was shipped off to live with her aunt, who had been trained by her mother and was now married, so that she could bequeath on Marian's spoilt daughter the benefit of a dispassionate lady's training. It was while she was away from home that she met Albert, who started to court her. One day, after seeing Albert off on a visiting 
Sunday in her girls' teacher training school, a friend came into classroom and sat next to her. Rhoda, you're my friend. And I cannot bear to see anything hurting. This young man, Albert, is married with two sons. His family lives in Ijare village where my fiancé also lives. I really don't know what he has told you, but he's not eligible to cut you. Rhoda thanked her friend. And on the next visiting day, as soon as Albert sat down, she raised the subject of his wife and children. Albert was shocked. Who told you this? Does it matter? Asked Rhoda. It matters because it is something I wanted to tell you myself. Besides, it is not completely true. He paused and then continued. It is true that I have two children, but I am not married. Really? asked Rhoda curiously. I planned to marry the mother of my children and recorded with that intention. But on the day that I went with my father to visit her parents, something happened. She did not see us coming and right before our eyes as we approached the house, my father and I saw her mother hit her father with a pestle. They were having a quarrel. While I stood there, my fiancé took a stick and joined her mother in beating her father. I ran over to stop her from hurting the old man, but she took one look at me and told me to get lost. I did not want her to turn on me. I stood there shocked and bewildered until my father led me away. I had heard about her temper but had never seen anything like that before. Right there and then, father returned to the village. He told me he had no intention of going with me to seek the hand of such a virago in marriage. I subsequently called off the engagement, but I provide care and support for my children. Rhoda sat quietly as she listened to him. He sounded quite sincere, and she knew she could verify his story if she needed to do so. So their courtship began in earnest, and Albert set a date for Rhoda to meet his parents. The chicken comes home to roost. When they arrived at Albert's home, Rhoda was welcomed by Albert's parents, and he then proceeded to take his fiancée to meet his grandfather. Old Prince Okasho peered at Rhoda through eyes that were aged but still sharp and asked her, You say your mother is from this village, but your father is from one of the northern kingdoms? Rhoda smiled politely. Yes, your highness. From which part of Imre is your mother? Asked the old man, quite curious. She answered, I do not know for sure, your highness. But I believe her family is called Olisa. Olisa! Albert rushed forward to steady his grandfather as the old prince staggered to his feet and asked her quite pointedly, Is your mother's name Ayenu? Yes, yes, your highness, Rhoda stood before the prince. Her baptismal name is Miriam, but her native name is Ayenu. Ha! Look at what fate has done. She ran away from with missionaries because she would not marry me. And all these years later, Ayeyun's daughter has come home to marry my grandson. What? 
Both Rhoda and Albert were stunned at the old man's revelation. Albert had never heard of Enyayin before, and he contemplated what implications this development would have on his plans to make Rhoda his wife. Rhoda could not believe her ears. She had heard the story of how her mother was to marry an old prince and of her own bold decision to run away instead of succumbing to the pagan life her father had planned for her. But she had not known the name of the prince. Although it crossed her mind vaguely when Albert said he was from Imerik Ikisi, he had not known he was related to the monarchy. What were the odds of her ending up with the grandson of her mother's scorned suitor? What's the old man going to do? She wondered. She did not have long. She did not have to wait long to find out. Welcome home, Abike," said the old man, holding out his arms to embrace Rhoda. Fate always intended for Olisa's family to be joined with mine in marriage. How I wish your grandfather would have been alive to see this day. Ha! That which men tried but failed to do through our own will and might has become accomplished by the hand of Almighty God with ease. My heart is full of joy. The prince gave them his blessing and they were married shortly afterwards. Albert immediately began making plans to travel abroad for his professional training as a chartered accountant, leaving two years later for the United Kingdom with his wife, while their young son was left in the care of his mother. A couple of years after his arrival in the United Kingdom, Albert was invited to return home to present himself as a candidate for the throne, following the death of, death of the other. A couple of years after his arrival in the United Kingdom, Albert was invited to return home to present himself as a candidate for the throne following the death of the Oba. Albert declined in favor of his education. A couple of years after his arrival in the United Kingdom, Albert was invited to return home to present himself as a candidate for the throne following the death of the Oba. Albert declined in favor of his education. Completing his professional training in record time, Albert and his family returned home, where he took up a lucrative private sector position with a multinational company. Rhoda stayed back in England for a few months as she rounded up her studies at the London School of Economics. She was also contemplating an offer to pursue a doctorate program at Harvard University in the United States. Rhoda asked Albert to pick up his older son and have him and their own son together at home by the time of her return. While they had been away in England, Albert had been notified of the death of his older son. The child had died of a fever, and Rhoda was determined to raise her husband's surviving son with her own children. She had given up hope of studying for her doctorate the moment Albert made it clear he was not in support of a long-distance marriage. And so Rhoda returned home, but only her son was waiting. Mm -hmm. 
Albert had been unable to convince the mother of his older son to let him take the boy. He clung. She clung to her son, full of suspicion and distrust. Years after Albert's return from the United Kingdom and 12 years after ascending the throne, the Oba passed away. And again, Albert was invited to come home to serve his people as monarch. He declined the invitation again, this time in favor of his fast-track private sector career. However, the battle for the monarchy took a serious turn when the alternate ruling house contested Albert's family's right to present any candidate. This contention went through a nine-year legal process championed by Albert on behalf of his family. At the end of the ninth year, a commission of inquiry upheld Albert's family's right to the throne and invited the family to present a candidate. Believing his job was done, Prince Albert prepared to give all necessary support to the appointed candidate, buying a brand new car as his contribution to the office. However, destiny called again this time on the heels of prophecy. Prominent and respected servants of God from all over the country announced to the family that Prince Albert was no longer to refuse his family's call to service, as he had done on two occasions prior to that time, as this was his destiny and the purpose for which he was created. According to the prophecy, Prince Albert was a man of destiny, specially created by God for the purpose of restoring his family's succession line to the throne. It was, prophet it was further prophesied that if Albert as monarch would lead his people with a seventh heart, protecting the widows and orphans, championing the course of the weak and strangers in his domain, Imre would experience decades of unequaled prosperity and development. And so it was that a quarter of a century after his marriage to Rhoda, Prince Albert became the monarch of Emory Kingdom. And with Rhoda by his side, they served the people with the fear of God, leading Emory into approximately another quarter century of prosperity. Olisa's dream was on his way to being fulfilled as Albert and Rhoda's two sons, third generation descendants of Olisa, became princes of Emory Kingdom eligible for the throne of their fathers. Escaping Destiny, Lara Many years later, as Lara contemplated her life's journey, it became apparent to her that God regards families generationally. When he called Abraham, he was thinking of a plan he had for the redemption of mankind. 